reading from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for ang the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the word, world. This is the word of God. I'm just not even going to say anything. It's the same thing every week. I'm, I, have a, I have a hard time with microphones, apparently. It's good to see you all. Good morning. All right. Well, we've got a fun text to dig into. Uh, so I'd love to begin our time by, uh, by going to our, our God in prayer. So would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, we ask that you, by your spirit, would implant your word in our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would help us to truly hear from you. Help us to internalize what it is that you have to say to us. And Lord, may your spirit enable us to be doers of the things that we learn. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, growing up, I played a lot of pickup basketball with my dad and brother in our driveway. And both my brother and I started playing uh, organized basketball at a young age. Like we, we were tall early, and so it was just kind of a given. Like, this is what you're going to do. So, so we did that. And so we learned how to play. We learned proper form and what to do with our feet and, and all the different things that go along with that. Uh, my dad was really happy to participate with us. He was really happy to play with us, but he did not grow up playing organized basketball. And so he kind of like figured out a way of playing that wasn't exactly proper. And, and my brother and I had a way of reminding him of that over and over again. And the thing that just kind of drove me and my brother crazy was my dad's shot. Um, now, we didn't, we didn't keep you know, shooting percentages. We didn't, we didn't you know, keep accurate statistics or any such thing. And I think if we did, we, we would have found that my dad's shooting percentage was probably pretty similar to mine and my brother's. But it looked ugly. Like, it just looked really, really ugly. So instead of shooting you know, from his shoulder up high, you know, taking, setting his feet, doing, doing all the things that one is supposed to do, my dad's shot would start from like around his gut. And it'd just kind of be like a, like a, little, like a little flip. A little flip. And again, it, it worked, but at what cost, right? Uh, 
Now, my dad knew what proper form looked like. Uh, he, he had heard it from me and my brother. Uh, he hopefully observed it in us. And he, he watched us learn. So he, he was well aware. He had as much instruction as we did. Uh, but he decided that he'd found something that worked for him. And so he was just going to stick with it. But there was a problem. See, it was, it was, he was kind of playing a short game. Right? If you're shooting from your gut... It, I mean, it, it might work. It worked for him for a little bit, but it only works if your opponent is significantly shorter than you are. <laughs> and for a while, my brother and I both were significantly shorter than him, but we both grew. My brother's 6'2", I'm 6'4". And if you're starting your shot from down here, like that ball has to travel a long distance to get over these arms. And so there were consequences to hearing words from us and not applying those words, not applying the wisdom of the implant. No, that's not the implanted word. Uh, now, granted, those consequences were, were quite small, and my dad did figure out a way. You know, he was still larger than us, and he can kind of throw us around. And he, he managed a way to, to, to maintain uh, his you know, competitiveness. Um, but again, it was, it was, it, there was a challenge that went along with not, not receiving and applying a word that he had been told over and over again. Now, we encounter situations in life that are like this, where we know on one level the right thing to do, but failing to do it, it comes with big consequences, consequences far more severe than losing to your sons in a pickup basketball game. In our text this morning, James tells us that we need to receive the implanted word, right, which is the word of God, because that word is able to save our souls. We need to hear that word, and we need to take the time to listen to God's word. But the task doesn't end with merely hearing and receiving. It doesn't end with merely listening. No, we are called then, after we have listened, to do what it calls us to do. So this morning, we are going to look at that twofold call, the call to hear and to do, and we're going to do so by looking at this text in two parts, right? hearing the word and doing the word. So I want to start first with hearing the word. James begins this section with a three-part command in verse 19. There he writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Doing the word begins, perhaps not surprisingly, with listening to the word. We need to be quick to hear. Now, this command would have been particularly important and literally important for the church that James was writing to, because people at that time, for the most part, didn't have access to the written word. So this meant that virtually all gospel communication was oral communication, when the church gathered, it gathered to hear the word of God. So listening was crucial. And if you weren't disciplined in listening, you would remain a spiritual infant. Now, we live in a time where we have access to the written word, but the call to listen to the word is no less important. The unfortunate truth, however, is that often we are not very good listeners to God or to one another. The celebrated psychologist Paul Turnier uh, many years ago diagnosed this issue, writing, listen to the conversations of our world between nations as well as between couples, 
They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. I think that's a powerful line. Billions and billions of words are produced every second, but how many of them are truly received? How many of them are truly listened to? We live in in an incredibly distracted age in which there are constant distractions, constant appeals for our attention in different directions. Think about how many conversations you've had with the top of somebody's head as they look down at their device. But the problem doesn't end there. Oftentimes, when we, even, when we get eye contact with somebody, we know that we're not actually being listened to. Instead, somebody is busy formulating what they, what their response to what they perceive, perceive your point to be. And this is why James tells us we, we need to be slow to speak. Right? Quick speech is often a sign of poor listening. But it is easy for us to be so self-consumed, so caught up in what's going on in our own heads, in our own hearts, that we neglect that important discipline of listening. So think for a second, is this you? Do you have a hard time pulling yourself away from your devices, pulling yourself away from the various distractions? Can you be so self-focused, so self-consumed, so caught up with what's going on in your own head and heart that you're not taking the time to acknowledge and listen to those around you. To be quick to speak and slow to listen, friends, is folly. Now, the ancients understood this. Uh, Zeno, the Stoic philosopher, said, we have two ears and one mouth, therefore we should listen twice as much as we speak. Or as one ancient Jewish teacher put it, men have two ears but one tongue, that they should hear more than they speak. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive. But the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in and keep it within proper bounds. I like that image. Uh, we, We have, God gave us, he blessed us with physical barriers for our tongue, just so as to remind us that, you know, perhaps we should be cautious with the things that come out of our mouths. But more importantly than Zeno or, uh, or an ancient Jewish philosopher, we have the word of God, which tells us, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. We need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. But the second part of that is we are also called to be slow to anger. Usually, one of the easiest voices to hear in a crowd is the angry voice, right? I'm, I'm going to get on a plane tomorrow to go to uh, our denomination's general assembly in Memphis. And I was just thinking about airports. There's lots of angry voices at airports, aren't there? And they are always so easy to point out, right? In a room filled with people, Usually, you are able to pick out an angry voice at a register, you know, complaining that, you know, I cannot believe that my bag is not going to be, is too big to be checked, or all, I'm getting that mixed up, too big to be a carry-on. How dare you? How dare you not give me the seat that I want and the time that I want it? It is so easy for us to pick out angry voices in the crowd, and the truth is that happens in our own heads as well. When we have anger rising up within us, so often that is the only thing that we can hear or focus on. 
it drowns out every other voice. But we need to hear James's reminder in verse 20, which tells us, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This warning should cause us to stop and consider whether our anger is truly righteous. We need to hear and internalize that reminder when our anger begins to keep us from hearing other people out. Now, there is a place for righteous anger, right? When we observe things in the world that are wrong, when we see injustice, when we see truth being trampled on, there is a place for anger. But, but typically, when you find yourself being quite angry, is it because of those things? Or is it because of other minor inconveniences? Now, if our habit when, when trying to listen is to not, right, to look at our devices, to be distracted, to be so focused on what's going on inside that we don't take the time to hear other people out, or to be quick to become angry so that other people's voices are canceled out, it's likely that if we do this with other people, we are going to do this with the Word of God as well. Because habits are powerful. Often if we do things and do, if we, if we, are characterized by a behavior in one area of our lives, that behavior is going to characterize us elsewhere, too. And that is problematic, to say the least. So we need to work, as James tells us, to receive the word with meekness, which is able to save our souls. Now notice the call. How are we supposed to receive God's word? With meekness with humility. Humility is a necessary component of listening because it avoids all of the pitfalls that I've mentioned. Humility, on the one hand, helps us to become good listeners because humble people tend to focus on other people more than themselves. C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity gets at this point beautifully in his chapter on pride. He says that when you meet a humble person, you're not necessarily going to walk away from that interaction thinking that was a very humble person. Because a humble person is not going to call attention to their humility. They're not going to say, uh, well, I'm a very humble person, because that's not a very humble thing to do on the one hand. They're also, a, a truly humble person isn't going to practice false humility, where they will be intentionally self-deprecating. Oh, I'm not good at anything. Oh, you're so great. Oh, I can't do this or that or the other thing. Because what is that person really trying to do? They're trying to get you to say, no, actually, you're amazing. Thank you. That's also not humility. Lewis says that when you walk away from an interaction with a humble person, the thing that's going to stick out is how focused on you they were. Tim Keller gets at this idea. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. See, the gospel gives us the freedom to stop being so self-focused. In the gospel, we have the privilege, the joy of finding our identity, of finding our worth, of finding our meaning, not in what we do, but in what Jesus has done for us. So then we have a newfound freedom to look up and out and away from our own navels. 
it enables us first to look up, as Hebrews uh, 10, 19 tells us. We have confidence in the gospel to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. See, the gospel allows us to look up in ways that we would never be able to otherwise. Why? Because we are sinful people. And at some level, even if we explicitly deny that, we, we know it internally. But we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all gone away from him in one way or another. And that, that eats at us, that eats at our consciences. But when we receive the word of the gospel... And we know that despite our sin, despite the fact that we have walked away from God, that we are known and loved, we can look up at him with confidence in a way that would seem just unfathomable otherwise. Now, the gospel gives us freedom. It gives us a standing and a confidence that nothing else can. So it enables us to look up, but it also enables us to look out at other people. But the gospel enables us to be humble because, because our standing is in something other than what we do. See, if I'm trying to prove myself, if I'm trying to earn my own righteousness, if I'm trying to earn my own standing before God based on my abilities, then other people become threats. Other people's performance, other people's positive attributes, other people's giftings, they, they, instead of just being something to praise in and of themselves, they become accusations against my own performance. But if my, root, if my standing is rooted securely in the work of Jesus, then I get to celebrate other people's successes in a way that I would never be able to on my own. Humility is, is a key is key to a listening posture. I think humility is also the antidote to anger. It is hard to be humble and angry at the same time. And think, think about it for a minute. Why do you typically get angry? So often what causes anger within us is that we have been hurt or slighted by someone or something. We have this tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, and people and circumstances have a way of cutting us down to size. And there are so many things that make, and so, so many of the things that make us angry are really just that. It's, it's situations in which we're not seen, or we're, we're not seen to be as important as we might think we are. And there's a whole range of things like this. And so, for example, if somebody cuts you off on the freeway, or somebody cuts in line, instead of it being a minor annoyance that somebody shouldn't do that, it turns into, how could somebody, how could you do that to me? And we, we turn it into a rage fest. We turn it into something that it's, it's something much bigger than it ought to be. Or if you get overlooked for something that you think you shouldn't have been, or you didn't get into the school that you were positive you were going to get into, or you get overlooked for a promotion that was yours. Again, instead of it just being a minor inconvenience, something for us to to grow, grow through, it's our, our whole worldview collapses. How could, how could someone not see me as, uh, in, in, in all of my greatness? Right? It turns into cancerous anger and bitterness. Or today, in, in our increasingly polarized society, 
the idea that someone might disagree with us. Instead of it becoming an opportunity for us to learn from somebody else, we immediately jump to, uh, we immediately tear the other person down. Humility doesn't mean that we don't disagree or take stands, but it certainly impacts the way in which we do so. See, it's your pride that tends to tell you that you're usually right. But the gospel reminds us of the humbling truth that we often aren't. But despite that, despite our our failures, despite our weaknesses, the gospel reminds us that we are deeply known and loved by God. So we are called to receive the implanted word with humility. We need to be good listeners. But we don't want to end there. We want to also be doers of the word. So now let's look at doing the word. James writes in verses 22 through 25, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. All right. In the previous section, James addresses the issue of not listening. And in verses 22 through 25, James addresses the problem of only listening. God expects us to act on what we hear, and there is a call to be doers of the word. And to make his point stick, James uses an everyday example. How should we approach the word? Well, we should approach it a little bit like we we would approach a mirror. Whenever you look at the word, it is like you are looking intently at your own face in a mirror. What truly matters when you're looking at a mirror is not the look that you take, but the action that you take in response to what you see. There have been countless times where I have been on my way uh, out the door to go do something, and I catch (laughs) a glimpse of myself in the mirror and realize I am a total mess. My hair is doing whatever it does. I've got a stain on my shirt, which I think for the next several years I can blame on my children. Um, now, it would be ridiculous if I were to notice those things and not do anything about it. Um, fun fact, uh, there was a, a number of years, probably about four consecutive years, where Katie and I joined four different churches. It, it was, it was, we, we moved. It wasn't a problem of like we were here and then got booted and, and joined somewhere else. Um, it just had to do with situations and we were moving in different places. And for three of those four times where we, we joined different churches, uh, Katie brought to my attention afterwards that after we were called up on stage and gave our vows and, and promised to be a part of this new community, three out of those four times, uh, my fly was down. Um, <laughs> it's very nice of her to let me know after the fact. Um, But again, it'd be ridiculous for me to learn that information beforehand and just not do anything about it. When when seeing a problem in the mirror, we want to act on it. Um, Thankfully, just so we're all clear, the the fourth time was when I joined this church. (laughs) 
And so perhaps that is why we've been able to stick around for as long as we, as long as we have. Right. Right. If you realize that you look like a public embarrassment, you don't ignore that fact. Otherwise, there's really no point in looking at a mirror at all. And James's point here is simple. God's word is to have the same kind of effect on us as a mirror would. We're supposed to act on what it shows us, and we're supposed to do it right away. Like a mirror, God's word shows us what we are really like. It shows us in our sin. It shows us the things that need to be changed. It gives you things to do. And when you look into the mirror, which is referred to later as the perfect law, the law of liberty, and act in accordance, do what it says, and persevere in your doing, then, we're told, you will be blessed. So then the question becomes, how do we persevere? Right, we've already established that the gospel tells us that, <laughs> that we're a mess, right? that we have sinned, that we've fallen short. But it also reassures us that despite those things, we're loved. But, but if we're starting from the, the place of you know, moral failure, right, what hope is there for us? And I think if we just look at the idea of change in general, people's ability to change, then it also feels somewhat hopeless. Um, statistics about personal change are, are rather depressing. For example, some 80% of people who make New Year's resolutions fall off the wagon by mid-February. Uh, Two-thirds of dieters gain back any lost weight within a year. 63% of gym memberships go completely unused. 70% uh, of coronary bypass patients revert to their unhealthy habits within two years of their operation. So, We've established our moral failure. People are bad at changing. Good luck, right? Uh, no, there's, there's, there's hope here. There's hope that God's word gives us to, to actually become doers of the word. And I want to suggest just a few things. How do, we, how do we become doers and not mere hearers of the word? Well, first off, we need to cling to the grace of God. We need to behold the goodness of of God is revealed in the beauty of the gospel, and allow that truth to shape our desires, to compel us to do and be what Christ calls us to do and be. We're talking about doing, but the ultimate drive for our doing is grace. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us. When we see the depth of Jesus's love, the extent of his mercy and goodness. We're moved then to listen and obey. That's the power of beauty in our lives. The love of Christ, the beauty of his grace compels us. Second, in order to become doers of the word, we need to recognize that we're not called to be doers on our own. The Bible teaches us that the Spirit of God resides within our hearts, and He enables us to be the people that God is calling us to be. He enables us to live lives that glorify God. I like how the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes this reality. Uh, it's the 7th century, 17th century Christian document, and, de and defines sanctification, which is the process of growing in holiness in this way. So sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which we are renewed in our whole person in the image of God and by which we are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. 
So how, how do we grow? How do we become doers of the word? Is it by just putting our heads down and, and working extra hard? No, it's first by, by recognizing that our ability to do is a gift of God's free grace. It is something that God gives by his spirit, a spirit who is constantly at work in our hearts, helping us to become the people that, that God has made us in the gospel, enabling us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. So when we behold the beauty of the gospel, we then need to turn to the work of the spirit and ask for help, knowing that that is help that the spirit wants to give. Now, there are, are certain sins that some people are going to struggle with and, and certain sins that other people are going to struggle with. Not everyone struggles with the same thing, but I think inevitably we all run into situations in which we need the Spirit's help. I don't struggle with every sin, thankfully. But there are certain things where I have completely run into roadblocks with. And I've had to say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need the grace of the Spirit in order, to, in order to live a life that brings you glory. I need the work of the Spirit in order to stop doing this thing that I hate. And it's by God's grace that, that He begins a work. We all need help. But the good news that we see in the gospel is not only are we picked up and freed and rescued and loved, but we're also we also get a partner to walk alongside us in every facet of our life. You know, it's not, God doesn't just you know, pick us up and dust us off and kick us along and say, figure it out. You know, every step of the way, the Spirit is at work renewing us, applying the grace of the gospel, helping us to die to sin and to live to righteousness, making us into the people that we're called to be, making us into the people that we want to be. So we need to behold the beauty of the gospel. We need to recognize and, and ask for the help of the Spirit. And lastly, we need each other. We need one another. Christianity is a team sport. When God calls us to himself, he calls us into a body. And he gives us a new family. He gives us brothers and sisters to walk alongside of. People often do wonky things when left to themselves. And people with the Bible by themselves often say and do wonky things. But by God's grace, he gives us a community of people to help us to see who he truly is, to help us to become true hearers and doers of the word. We're not meant to read a text in isolation and come up with ideas on our own. No, God gives us the gift of brothers and sisters to test ideas by, to say, you know, I think God is teaching me this here in this text. What do you think? Help me. I think one of the, the fun things about living with people, whether it's a spouse or, or just a roommate, is oftentimes like you'll notice things about yourself or your body, and, and then you've got somebody they can say like, hey, like, what's this? Like, should I be concerned? Because one of the worst things that can happen is like you notice something or you feel something and, and then you Google it. Because usually Google will tell you, I mean, not Google in particular, but your, your internet search will tell you you're going to die. 
right? It'll tell you, like, the worst possible scenario. It'll send you in all kinds of wonky directions. So it's really nice to have somebody to come and to look at the weird thing on your back and, and tell you, no, you're going to be okay. You can pray for Katie. Right? That is one of the beautiful things that we get to do for each other in the church. It's not meant to be us and the word in isolation apart from everybody else. No, we, we do have the gift of, of individual access to the word, and we should be reading it on our own. But we have an even greater gift of getting to read God's word in community together. And we need each other in order to grow in grace. Have you ever tried to do something on your own? Have you ever set a New Year's resolution on your own? That's probably why so many of them fail, right? We're not very good at holding ourselves accountable. But when other people come alongside of us, that's when real change at least has potential to take root. And God knows this about us, and he gave us the gift of his church. So we need to behold the beauty of the gospel. We need to constantly ask for the, for the Spirit's help. And we need each other. We need brothers and sisters to, to tell us who God is, to remind us of the truths of his word, and to, and to point us in the right directions. And what does all of that look like when we put it all together? Well, at the very end of James chapter 1, he gives us a beautiful picture of what hearing and doing looks like. I just want to read verse 27 for you. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. When we are hearers and doers of the word, beautiful things happen. And I love this picture in verse 27, right? Religion that is pure and undefiled means that we care about other people. We care about other people in our community, particularly the most vulnerable people among us. And we care deeply about holiness. Being doers of the word produces a beautiful fruit and something that is so desperately needed in our church, but in our world too. So may the Spirit do this work in us so that we can see this fruit in our midst. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the implanted word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to not simply hear it, Lord, but to do it. So first, God, give us the gift of listening. Lord, help us to, to have true humility. Help us to trust in the ways in which you are directing and to not be so caught up with our own agendas. But Lord, after we have heard by your Spirit, Lord, help us to do. Help us to love you and other people in the way that, you're call, that, in the way that you call us to. And God, by your spirit, help us to persevere in it. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.